0: Well, welcome back. I hope you had a chance to say hello to a few friends. Before Dan comes up for the preaching of God's Word, I'm going to invite uh, Wendy Liu to read the scripture passage for us this morning. Wendy. Our reading today is from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?
1: Toronto Church. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to welcome you. Jesus says some astonishing things. Here in this passage, Jesus has some really hard things for us to hear. But if we have ears to let him astonish and provoke us, he has some transforming and healing things to say to us. Here, Jesus meets a rich young man. And in the exchange and in the aftermath, we learn at least three things about life with God. Firstly, how costly it is. Secondly, how hard it is. And thirdly, how beautiful it is. Costly, hard, and beautiful. Let's look at those three. How costly it is. So we're picking up the story here in Mark chapter 10. We've been in the book of Mark for a long time, but if you're not familiar with the New Testament, the story of Jesus meeting a rich young ruler, this is it. Mark simply calls him a man, but the other gospel writers, Luke and Matthew, call him a rich, young ruler. He's probably about Jesus' age. He seems to be known to both Jesus and his disciples based on the way they respond to him. And he asks the question, the question of the book of Mark, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He kneels. He seems earnest He calls Jesus a good teacher. He seems to really be spiritual and moral. And Jesus asks him a question. It's a little foreshadowing that Jesus is doing. It's a little playful reeling him into the conversation because he doesn't really know who he is facing. And Jesus gives him some foreshadowing. He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God himself. Jesus is saying only God has the right to be called good teacher. And to respond to your question. And then Jesus responds to it. I.e., Jesus is saying to him, I am God. He asks, I'm sorry, he tells the rich young ruler a bunch of commandments to obey. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. um, Honor your father and mother. A bunch of them are from the Ten Commandments. Five of them are from the Ten Commandments. One of them, he adds, that isn't from the Ten Commandments, don't defraud anyone. Clearly he knows this man's economic situation. He seems to know him. He adds one that's particularly pertinent to this man's station in life. But if you're a Christian who knows the Ten Commandments, or if you're an original reader steeped in Judaism, you would know of the Ten Commandments, one commandment is preeminent, and it's the commandment I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Before me doesn't mean higher than me. It means before my view, before my face. Jesus doesn't say that here, but he's reeling him in to answer that actual question and to look at that actual commandment. You see, the man responds, I've done all these things from my youth. Showing something about himself. He thinks That inheriting eternal life is about something we do. Park that into your brain. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then Jesus, it says, looks at him, loved him, and then drops the big one on him. You lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. What is Jesus doing? He's demanding total allegiance Total abandonment to himself. Full stop. Give me everything you've got. And come follow me. Give me your life. It's an astonishing demand that only God would be qualified to make in that culture. And that's exactly who is making this demand. God is. Jesus is God making this comment. Give me everything. Now, let's stop here just for a moment for some observations and some implications. Firstly, Jesus is effectively saying to him what the first commandment said in the book of Exodus and in the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. There is no functional God that you are going to make the foundation of your life. Your money is that. Put it away. Come follow me. Now, this story... Therefore, it's definitely about money, but it's not primarily about money. It's primarily about something deeper and more universal. It's about what defines you and what you found your life upon. What is the thing that you treasure? The things that if God himself walked right up to you and said, give that to me, you would go, could I have a second opinion? I don't know what that is for you, but you probably do. It's that something that you think defines you. That's something that you can't be without. That's something that you've allowed to become a foundation for you. It could be being loved or accepted, respected. That was mine. Could be your career. Could be your kids. Could be your financial security. Could be having power and influence. It could be whatever it is. It's a thing. And it's your thing. And it's precious to you. It itches at you, desiring to be scratched. You daydream about it. It takes up a lot of your mental time and dreaming early in the morning and late at night. Your mind kind of wanders there. It captures your imagination and your affections. For this rich young ruler, it was money. But it could be something else for you and for me. It says in the text, "...disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." Note this. Jesus wants all of him as he wants all of you and all of me. He literally is reaching down the spiritual throat of this rich young ruler and touching that thing at the heart of the heart of his affections. And he's saying, give that to me. And the response of the rich young ruler says he was grieved, he was disheartened. That Greek word means he was deeply made sorrowful. Uh, why? Because it suddenly dawned upon him that he really was relying upon his wealth and his possessions to define him. Jesus has put his finger on the pulse of his desires, his affections, his heart. And he said, your money, your money is what's stopping you from giving your life over to me unconditionally. And the rich young ruler said, yep, yeah, I'm not ready to give that up. That's what he said. And as he leaves, the disciples are shocked because they seem to know this man. And I want to tell you, I think if you and I were in there, in that scene, a bunch of questions would probably come up. What, what does this mean for me? How much of my money do I need to give away? As a matter of fact, some of you are probably planning to text questions right now. What does this mean for how much money I need to give and what kind of lifestyle? I don't have that answer for you. So I'm not going to answer those questions today. Because Jesus says, it's all mine. Give it all to me. It's not about percentages and amounts here. It's about your heart. And if you're trying to put boundaries on how much you need to give and will feel comfortable giving, you're missing the point. Jesus wants you. That's the cost of eternal life. You. Cost you everything. Because the God we met in the Old Testament who said you shall have no other gods before me is the God we meet here in the Gospels in Jesus who says you need to give me everything. You can't have anything else rivaling me. Now at this point, if you're a thoughtful listener you're thinking this is a ridiculously costly standard who then can get eternal life you're with the disciples if if that's the cost who can get eternal life exactly we now move to our second point because jesus doesn't flinch on that he doesn't say well i was you know being a little hyperbole here he turns to his disciples and he makes the second point it's not just costly it's actually impossible. That's how hard it is. Mark, <clears throat> verse 23 of chapter 10, looked around says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, and so he says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. For who? For everyone. Period. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished. It's a hard saying. And they said, then, who can be saved? And he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now here, in this second point, in this second paragraph, Jesus does make it more about money. He says it's so difficult for the wealthy to get into the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed. Because to be wealthy back then was a sign you were favored by God, probably blessed by God. And if you were wealthy and moral like this person seemed to be, you definitely were in the top tier of the people who were going to get eternal life. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me switch this around. In the gospel, wealth is spiritually dangerous. It could actually become a spiritual weight that drags you down. It can become a curse. And then he uses an idiom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a like a sewing needle. And then for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, scholars have tried to water this down. I've looked at the history of interpretation of these verses. There's a lot of people out there that probably, if you're a Christian long enough, you've heard this one. There's a, a narrow gate at night into Jerusalem that was nicknamed the eye of the needle. And camels couldn't fit through. You had to get off your camel, and then your camel had to kneel. No, there's no evidence for that, actually. It sounded good. It's been around for 60, 70 years. It just, there's no evidence for it. Tim Keller, in commenting on this and the research, said, here's the best analogy. Here's the best way to put it in modern English. There isn't a snowball's chance in you know where that a rich person could enter the kingdom of God. That's what it should feel like. It's that hard. Now, why is it that hard for wealthy people? The Bible gives us two clues as to some of the deep reasons why Wealth makes it so hard. There's a peculiar power in wealth, and there's a peculiar deceitfulness in wealth. Peculiar power in wealth. Psalm 52, verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge there to his own destruction. Proverbs eighteen eleven A rich man's wealth is his strong city, like a high wall in his imagination. It's his fortress, it's his foundation. You see, in the Bible we were made to rest in, trust in, rely upon God. He made us that way. For our daily needs, for our overall happiness, we were designed that way. We were designed to make God our trust, our foundation. But wealth above all things gives you the opportunity to relocate that trust in yourself. Do you really put trust in all of your connections and living a certain social and economic circle? Wealth will give you that opportunity. Do you build your own sense of your own worthiness on the stuff you own and the places you can visit? Wealth allows you to do that. Do you really feel... Validated by the pleasures that you have. Wealth lets you have them. Do you like influence? Power. Wealth can procure that for you. It gives you access to the corridors of power and influence. Wealth is the gateway drug to all these false foundations that we tend to build our lives around. All the pleasures, all the relationships, all the control we're looking for Wealth is the gateway drug that gives us access. That's why that peculiar power of wealth to open up all the avenues to all these other foundations makes it peculiarly dangerous. That's why I think Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It can master you because of its peculiar power as a gateway drug to get you there. Secondly, there's a particular deceitfulness or blindness that wealth has for us. Look at the situation. The rich young ruler has an abundance of possessions. Everyone knows he's wealthy, but it doesn't dawn on him that this is a barrier between him and God until Jesus calls it out. He never seems to have seen it. Neither did the disciples. There's a rich man. He's walking away because he won't give his life to Jesus. They've given all their possessions up, and they're still saying, I don't know why he can't get in. There's a blindness, it seems, to us. So, if it's got a peculiar power to master us as a gateway to all these things, and if it seems to have a bit of blinding power in us, how then do wealthy people actually make it into the kingdom of God? Jesus says what's impossible for humans is possible with God. He's saying it will take a miracle of God for a wealthy person who's so tempted to relocate his trust or her trust in themselves and in what it will give them, wealth. It's so tempting for them to do that, to be self-dependent. It will take a miracle of God in his grace to free you from that temptation. Now let's take a look in the mirror. Do the struggles we see here in the rich young ruler and even in some of the disciples, are they mirrored in our own lives? If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I want to ask you, do you notice that as our culture has gotten wealthier and wealthier over your lifetime, we've also gotten more and more self-reliant? Have you not noticed that we now expect to have answers to everything, for the government to get everything right? We are spending millions of dollars trying to chase down where the coronavirus originated from as if that matters anymore. We need to know. We need to be able to say, we can prevent this. Who started it and why? You see what we're doing? We think we can control. We're so self-reliant. We are easily the most affluent and easily the most self-reliant culture in the history of humanity. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Our wealth, our affluence, changes the way our thinking, makes us think we can can control more than we can. Sure, technology helps as well, but that's a product of a kind of wealth too. Christians, There is an epidemic right now of Christians who think that their relationship with God is primarily defined by what they do. When I ask people how you're doing spiritually, this generation almost always slumps their shoulders, looks down, and describes their own disappointment at how they're doing in their relationship with God. Now, there there could be some real reasons here. Many of us are too busy for God, and we need to look at that, and we need to repent of that. If you're not willing to give God your time, you're like the rich young ruler, and you need to give him your time. Your schedule is his. Is it possible you're chasing wealth or one of these false idols so hard you don't have time for God? There's some real issues there. But I want to say to the vast majority of, of people in our church. We are a generation that looks to ourselves and what we can control to define a relationship with God, just like the rich young ruler was defining his understanding of eternal life by what he was doing. And Jesus reeled him in and watched him do that. The point is this. If you are in the kingdom of God and you are a Christian, it is only because what is impossible for us To let go of our control. To let go of these false functional idols in our lives. What is impossible for us to do. God has done by his grace unconditionally. That is the one way and the only way we can ever get into the kingdom. The rich young ruler could not get into the kingdom by what he did, and neither can you or I. That's the point Jesus wants to make here. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the grace of God. None of us can work our way back in. We, we all relocate our trust. Even the most outwardly moral and religious of us, we struggle with that. We may not admit it even to others, but we all have something. Something like the rich young ruler that if Jesus came to us and said, I want that, you'll say, want a second opinion that part's precious to me now are all, all these desires wrong no no i'm not saying that most of these desires are good we'll talk about that in a few minutes Pleasure's good being loved is good having influence can be great having money can be a wonderful way of blessing people part of the allure of these things is they're not inherently evil they're good things but they become distorted and disordered by us into all-encompassing things Into defining things, we need them too much. So, if it's impossible for wealthy people, and actually impossible for any of us to get in, what's the point? The point is a relationship with God through Jesus is costly, it'll cost you everything. It's impossible, He has to initiate it by His grace. But it's worth it because it's beautiful. And that's the third point. Peter then turns to him and says, well, we've left everything and followed you. Like, we've done this. And Jesus says, yeah. But truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, etc. Just listen to those words. Peter says, we've done what he couldn't. We've left everything to follow you. Are we okay? And Jesus says, you've left it for my sake. Here then is the beginning of the solution. How do people get eternal life? For my sake. They haven't suppressed their desires for these good things. They've replaced them at the center of their lives with a deeper affection. You don't get greed out of your life by saying, it's bad, it's bad, it's wrong. That's what our culture has tended to say. It's not working. What Jesus says is, replace that affection with a more lasting, more beautiful, deeper one, me. And that's what these disciples have done. They've met Jesus, and he's become their treasure. He's become the most precious thing. He's become the pearl of great price. Friends... This is the only way to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is the only way to dethrone money or power or reputation at the center of your life. You will not defeat the allure of money by saying it's bad. You will defeat it by saying Jesus is better. Now, who is this Jesus that he's so much better, that he's so much precious? See how he responds to Peter he promises them something astounding all these desires that you want that you want to rule you that you're tempted to define you all these things that money can acquire for you they have their place in your life but you will receive a hundredfold through me houses and homes and financial stuff and relationships hundredfold now, is Jesus denouncing wealth? No, he's promising it. <laughs> see, this is not an anti-wealth screed. Let's not get sidetracked on, on how what Jesus is doing here doesn't fit with our present cultural narrative against wealth. Let's stay in the moment because Jesus is promising infinite wealth, infinite pleasure, love, meaning, peace, and comfort to those who make him their treasure possession. How can Jesus promise this? Men and women, don't you see? Don't you see in the story of the rich young ruler who's the actual rich young ruler? Don't you see? The rich young ruler is facing Jesus, the wealthiest ruler, God himself who created and owned the cosmos. It came down. And emptied himself, gave it all up to become a vulnerable human being. Gave it all up and becoming vulnerable. He wasn't even esteemed by us. He was the son of a carpenter in a backwater land. And then he was the hated and rejected rabbi who claimed to be God, who rose again and proved he was God. But before he rose again, he gave up everything he had, even as a human. Became rejected, defiled, despised, arrested, killed, and hung upon a cross. 1 John 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest, known among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning payment for our sins. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up his divinity, his reputation, his possessions. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was arrested, that Greek word comes back into the text. It said he was grieved because he realized he had to give up one more thing, his relationship with his father. The thing that gave him rest, that the foundation of his life, he had to give up so that you and I could have that for ourselves. And he gave his life as a Guilt offering to pay the price for our sin that we could have that relationship, that eternal life. The impossible has become possible because the rich young ruler has come into this world and given up everything. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich, we might become the heirs of eternal life. A couple of quick applications Firstly, face Jesus and understand the treasure that is before you. This wasn't just a rabbi calling him to give stuff up to the rich young ruler. This is the rich young ruler who has given everything up for that man and says, I've given all the riches and all of creation up for you. I love you that much. Now trust me. And give it all up for me. Respond for me as I have emptied myself for you. Root yourself in that treasure. If you're not yet a Christian, see the love of God in Jesus for you. And give yourself. If you're a Christian, root yourself here. Put this as your foundation. That I am his by his unconditional grace. Because the rich young ruler gave himself up for me. Secondly, take that foundation and build upon that foundation a life and continued infusion of gratitude. Gratitude. I said that you need to replace these affections for love or power or meaning or relationship with a deeper affection in Jesus. Yes. One of the ways is to keep transfusing out your restlessness, your desire for things, and transfusing into your spiritual blood. <laughs> Gratitude. Bill DeYoung, uh, pastor, professor, and author in his important book called Eucharistic Reciprocity discusses what in Christian history have been called the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And he says all of these are actually distortions of good desires. Pride distorts the desire for acceptance. Envy distorts the desire for equality. Anger distorts the desire for justice. Sloth distorts the desire for rest. Greed distorts the desire for provision. Gluttony, the desire for pleasure. Lust, the desire for relationship and love. But these things, pleasure, provision, rest, love, equality, these are good things. But they get corrupted when they become ultimate things. But they will be given to you assuredly by the rich young ruler if you will give him your life that's what Jesus says, when I come back to make all things new, you will get all of these. And so, build your life around the gratitude that Jesus has made it sure by his death and resurrection that this is your inheritance. Look back and build gratitude in your life. Look forward and see the hope that has been put there assuredly for you and let gratitude transfuse your life and live a life of gratitude for what you have been given rather than a life of restlessness for what you don't think you yet have. Finally, create behaviors, habits. What Jen Pollock Michelle in her book, The Habit of Faith calls habits of faith, what I'll call here habits of freedom. Build habits of freedom to keep yourself from the mastery of wealth. First of all, when you're thinking of budgeting, take a look at all the money that you get and say, that's not my money to allocate. That's God's money. Switch the budgeting process. Secondly, budget generosity into your life. How much do I need to live and flourish and take care of my family? And take the rest. And say, how can I use this generously and start planning for generosity? Make sure that you are giving... Gen- if... if if you're living exactly like all the young professionals or older professionals or people in your industry are living, if, if, if you're giving patterns, do not change your lifestyle at all so that it exactly mirrors, ask yourself, i really giving it all to Jesus. Create habits of freedom through your budgeting process and create margins of spontaneous generosity so you can respond to needs the needs that have arisen in COVID, the needs here, Jesus says, particularly focus upon the poor. Jesus is telling the rich younger one of the symptoms of a life freed from the mastery of wealth is the ability to give to the poor. It's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus. In fact, it's impossible to follow Jesus and inherit eternal life. But the beautiful thing is Jesus has done it for you by giving us his life, his death. He's the rich young ruler. Enter into the generosity of this rich young ruler. Enter into the freedom of giving it all away because it's assuredly coming back to you in the day of the renewal of all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for this time, for your goodness and your grace. Help us. Help us to live these lives of generosity and freedom. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we have um, a few questions. Um, if, if it is indeed difficult for those with great wealth to enter the kingdom of God, speak to some hap- habits and practical disciplines we can put in place. Uh, this was at 1107. I think you asked the question before I did answered it at the end so uh, I think I answered it thank you uh, here's 1120 just before my applications uh, we, we need to replace our central focus let go of wealth and idols and follow Jesus. how do we do this practically okay that was right beforehand as well uh, again make him your foundation cultivate gratitude keep meditating upon who Jesus is and what he's given you meditate Here's my, meditate on the fact that your guilt has been paid. Take a half hour and read all the verses on your guilt of being paid by Jesus. Take a half hour and look at verses about how Jesus has relationally reconciled you to God. Read Ephesians chapter 1, for example. It's, it's a rich Chapter, Colossians chapter one. Read these. Read about how your guilt has been paid. Your relationship has been restored. Read about your future being secured. Read Romans eight about how your future is secured. Read Romans six about sin being dethroned in your life. Focus on what has been done for you. Stop, stop the tendency, I do it too, to look at the Bible in a what do I need to do today? You know, pull out your here's my to-do list from the Bible verses. Soak in on what has been done for you. So that's the first thing. Second thing, create these transfusions. Sorry. Second thing, create these transfusions of gratitude. Thirdly, habits of freedom. Okay. Uh, how can we justify enjoying or desiring good things in this life? If Jesus promises to give you good things a hundredfold in the life to come, I think you can call them good, because Jesus isn't going to give you anything that's not good. So, I don't have any problem justifying good things. I do have a problem with over-desiring them. Yes. How do we know if our repentance is genuine? (sighs) Ask friends. Do this in community. Great question. Great question. Uh, Ask your friends. Have them hold you accountable. They will know whether it's genuine or false over time. It it may take some time to see whether you're bearing true fruits of repentance or not. Thank you. That's enough time on these questions. And thank you for not asking about percentages uh, this time. I really appreciate it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that money is a potential master, but it's also an opportunity for great blessing, properly understood, given to you. Help us to make wise, godly use of money to help the flourishing of people, to help us to treasure you better and to help us show the love that you've been giving us to other people. We love you and praise you in Christ's name, amen.